it's a delight to be with you this morning. And uh, yeah, the Alberta Parkland District is uh, right now, it's 31 churches. And uh, we stretch from all of central and northern Alberta, starting at the highway that runs across east-west through Innisfail. I forget what that highway number is. <laughs> but uh, so we have Big Valley Coronation uh, in our district. And of course, just below, you have three hills. Well, that goes to the Prairie District. So, so that's the dividing line. And uh, we just took in another church. Uh, we had taken it in as a associate church plant, Eckville, last year when we were up in high level. And uh, this year it's already progressed that they applied for full member status. And Ron Swanson, some of you will know him, former president of our free church. And uh, Grant Sixtrom, I don't know whether some of you know him, with uh, the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada. They are both uh, kind of quarter-time pastoring. And now they're ready to call their own pastor. So it's a very healthy group of people that uh, were about 40 in number, and they had been meeting out of the Sylvan Lake Alliance. The uh, Sylvan Lake Alliance decided to redirect some funding and said, you know, you do what you want. And Ron stepped in to do some pulpit supply. Next thing, they were joining the free church. So <laughs> he's a good salesman for the free church. So we have that church that has just uh, joined us. We, of course, have Wembley, which uh, you as a church have been quite supportive of as well. We want to say thank you for that. Uh, just over a year ago, when we met in high level the board had decided if we could raise $200,000 by the beginning of January when our lease was uh, coming up, we would buy the building. We would take out a mortgage for the remainder of $200,000. The building cost four hundred, valued at six hundred and fifty, And uh, they would see that as God saying, let's move forward. Um, I had no idea where that money was coming from. I had a few shekels in the district pockets, but not nearly enough. But we decided we're going to pray about this. This seems like God is in this. We've been going at it for two years. And uh, when it actually came time to t- take out a mortgage, we had 250000 I don't know, just churches like yourselves that said we can do something. And um, the interesting part is we have raised 310 already. So they're left with a mortgage of about 90000 The district holds it, but uh, eventually that building will be theirs. A very nice building, so, uh, but a great uh, head start for them as a church plant. COVID has certainly restricted them in many ways, and so we're concerned about that. But they do have a group of about 30 or 40 people that are faithfully a part of that. And uh, online, of course, you can reach a much larger audience. So at times they were having over 150 people tapping in, many of them from the community already. 
So it just becomes another porch that people can enter in and uh, get acquainted with what the church is like. The interesting thing is the fundraising for that uh, church building. One of the churches that took the initiative in that was our Bonacord Church, which we attend, make our home church. They didn't have a building, but they had some significant resources already to uh, trying to get one, to at least have a down payment. And uh, they said, you know, it's going to be years before we can do something with that. Let's uh, give 10000 of it away. And then they put out a challenge letter, which I'm sure you as a church got, received, whether churches could consider matching something uh, similar to that. Well, God has blessed in an amazing way. A church closed in the area that was uh, a church plant out of Mournville. And they had just put up a very nice bungalow-style church building. And they said, you know what? We really don't know what to do with this. It was deeded to us. So uh, we're going to take and give you a one-year lease on this, basically just to cover our costs. And in one year, we'll evaluate. But we'll consider possibly deeding it back to you. So uh, pray with us about that. We've just been in it. We've just had several services in it. And it's a very comfortable building, very adequate for what we need presently. We'll soon outgrow it, hopefully. But, uh, but for now, it's a wonderful stepping stone from what we did have. Uh, seniors drop-in center that had cement floors and cold feet, <laughs> as I remember it. <laughs> So uh, God's been good. God blesses faith. So we're, we're glad for that. We've got several churches looking for pastors, Fox Creek and Onaway, and uh, right now our pastor in uh, high level, Don Ford, who's been there many years, actually called back the second time, and uh, he has let them know he'll be done the end of April. That's a hard place to get a pastor to go to. Uh, do you want to volunteer your pastor? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you want to keep him, and we're glad for the ministry he has here. But uh, pray with us for these places where we need to find pastors. There is a very short supply these days on pastors, so hang on to the one you have as best you can. Those are some of the things happening in our district we want to look to God's word this morning, and I'm going to be looking from 2 Chronicles chapter 27, 28, and 29. So, now we're not going to be able to read all that. Pardon me, 26, 27, 28. Um, but I'm going to kind of cherry pick through several passages there. And uh, as you know, we have a real challenge that we're living with these days with COVID. And uh, I've got quite a concern about that as to what's happening and how we're doing as churches. Uh, George Barna Institute did a survey. This was after the first shutdown. 
And he said um, what he had discovered, one-third of people who faithfully attended church kept attending by whatever means was there, either virtually or whatever, YouTube, whatever they could do. So in other words, they were committed to their local church and to try to participate as best they could. One-third, he said, used it as an opportunity to do what I call church hopping, just tapping in all kinds of places and seeing what has the best sermon that Sunday. He said one-third haven't done anything. And he said, many of those people are thinking they're not coming back because they've learned something. I can be a Christian without going to church, right? This becomes a habit. And uh, he said, especially the youngest generation, the millennials right now, he said, and this is, by the way, people who were committed churchgoers. This is not just random people. These were committed, church-going people. He said of the millennials, 50% have no intention of returning. So that has a real concern on my heart. And uh, as our churches have reopened, all of our churches have reopened except one in Edmonton that still isn't uh, opening uh, physically. What our pastors are saying is, you know, it's getting hard to regather our people. This has been a significant blow to us. And um, so it's a real challenge. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? But I, I want to affirm that and the importance of that. Uh, there's a growing category when they do census data these days on church life. It used to be that uh, the largest growing category was that of people that said no faith whatsoever, atheist. That was increasingly growing. But now they've put out in some of the uh, census collections um, a bit of history And what they're realizing is that the largest growing number right now are what we call the duns. People who came to church, were involved in church, were leaders in their church, but now say, but I'm done. Whether that's grandchildren that just take them away, other interests, or they say, I've done my part, I'm tired, I'm burnt out. Whatever it is, they're saying, I'm done. And that's what they're saying, uh, checkmarking and finding is an increasingly growing number of people. And of course, with that comes the realization, I can be a Christian without going to church. So why should I go? Well, I want to take you to uh, three kings in our biblical history here in the Second Chronicles. And we're going to look at a grandfather, a son, and a grandson. And uh, you know, as uh, Pastor Marvin has taken and uh, 
preach through the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, and if you studied these kings, he probably told you, as goes, as the kings go, so goes the nation, right? And so uh, these three kings played an extremely pivotal part. I want to look at Grandpa first. Chapter 26, verse 1. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, which, by the way, is a tremendously long reign. And um, his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. This guy is an amazing king to have the kingship put on him at 16 years old. We're just at the place we're soon going to celebrate our, our queen being the monarch for 70 years. That came at a very tender young age for her. And what a tremendous responsibility was on her shoulders, especially in wartime. But you know what? Isaiah was younger than her when he became king and had a lot more responsibility in many ways in leadership and direction and being the military commander of a nation. But this guy did an amazing job because he had Zechariah at his side as his advisor. And it says, as long as Zechariah kept him focused on God. God prospered him. He was visionary. Verse 2 says he had built Eloth. What was Eloth? Well, Eloth was a very strategic port on the Red Sea, today known as Elat. Um, And uh, Solomon had built that port, and out of that port had taken and given Judah access to all the world trade of the time. But they had lost that. And Isaiah realized if we're going to really be a world nation, a significant superpower, we have to reclaim Elat. And he reclaimed it, he rebuilt it. This guy is a visionary guy. He connected Israel to all the trade routes of the known world. This was strategic to growth. So he was visionary. Now, in the church, we need visionary people too. And interestingly enough, the Bible talks about your leaders being episkopos. And uh, to be an episcopate means to have oversight. Now, oversight doesn't mean you just have control. 
It really has an issue of sight. It means you can see further and broader than other people. That's what you have to be as a church leader. But that's what we have to be as even civil leaders. People that can see further and broader than the rest of the populace. Well, he had that. He was a builder. It says, verse 6, that he went and he warred against the Philistines, broke down the, down the wall of Gath, the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod, built cities in the area of Ashdod and the, among the Philistines. These cities would have been strategic to defense. And it says as well in verse 10, he built towers in the wilderness, hewed many cisterns. He had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and fertile fields, for he loved the soil. This guy was a builder, and not just a small local enterprise. No, he built huge national endeavors. These farms were not just to feed his family. These farms were national farms to feed the nation. And he built the cisterns that were necessary to irrigate them. This guy was an amazing guy. We just had Remembrance Day. And the focus on Remembrance Day tends to be the people who laid down their lives physically for our freedom. One thing that we often forget is that many of those veterans who came back were the very same people. They didn't lay down their lives. That's why they could return. But they invested their lives in this country. And those who survived the war typically are the people we call the builders of Canada. They built the roads and the railways and the infrastructure and the hospitals and the schools of our country. They invested their lives in other ways. And we owe a tremendous debt to the builders of our country. Many of them were veterans who came back and who had that kind of vision now to make our country a great country. So that was Isaiah. He was a builder. He was a defender. He had put all these defense cities in the wilderness to keep people away. They couldn't even get close to Jerusalem. He was a military power. Verse 15 says, He made engines of war, invented by skillful men to be on towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones, so that his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. This guy had the latest war technology. They didn't have uh, planes in those days, but he would have had the stealth bombers in modern day. He would have had the cruise missiles of his day. 
This guy was amazing. He was strong. He made his country a superpower. And it says because he sought the Lord. In fact, his very name meant God is my strength. There was one fault, though, with him. His prosperity came because he sought the Lord, and as long as Zechariah was his friend and his confidant and advisor, kept him on track. But if you go to verse 16, when he became strong, his heart was so proud, he acted corruptly and was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. And Azariah The priest entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, who were valiant men. They opposed Isaiah the king and said, It's not for you, Isaiah, to burn the incense to the Lord. That's the priest's job, the sons of Aaron. Get out of the sanctuary. You've been unfaithful. You have no honor from the Lord God. But Isaiah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, became angry. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead in the house of the Lord. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out. All his prosperity came because he sought the Lord. But somewhere he made one fatal mistake. Success can humble us. It can also inflate us, right? And his success inflated him. So had he stepped over a boundary... Maybe Zechariah had died. I don't know why he did, chose to do this. But he did. And as a leper, he could never enter the temple of God again. In fact, Leviticus 13, verse 46, I believe, says that he had to be outside the walls of the city. He had to go around with his hand over his face and shout, unclean, unclean. He lived in quarantine, and we know exactly what that's like, don't we? It's not a lot of fun. So here he was, one of the first quarantine people in the Bible. Now, apart from one failure, he was a faithful king. The only time historians tell us that Judah's strength started to match that of David's and Solomon's time. Amazing guy. Just one mistake. That's the pinnacle of strength. Now I want to take you to the very opposite extreme. To the decline of Judah. Chapter 28, we're going to skip 27 for now. Chapter 28, verse 1, Ahaz is his grandson. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, 
And he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He had made molten images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and burned his sons in the fire, according to all the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. Wherefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. There is only one king in Judah's history in which not one redeeming virtue is noted. And that is Ahaz. Not one good thing. It says he offered his children to Moloch. Who was Moloch? Well, he was Baal. And he did it in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. In the New Testament, the term is Gehenna. From which we get the word hell. If you're offering your children to hell, who are you offering them to? In fact, we could say that he was saying to his children, go to hell. And I'm prepared to deliver you there. Such was Ahaz. He lost his military might. He was invaded by the Arameans from the east, from Israel from the north, from Edom from the south, and from the Philistines who still lived in the southwest coastal area of Israel. All these nations came and poured into Judah. It says, because God humbled Judah because of Ahaz. Wow, what a change from his grandpa. What a change. And the cause, it says in verse 19 of this chapter, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, for he brought about a lack of restraint in Judah, And was unfaithful to the Lord. A lack of restraint. In other words, everything goes. The people had forsaken the God of their fathers. Sometimes we just think, well, what's so important about doing the same things over and over again? You know, things just become tradition, right? Somebody said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. It's wonderful to have traditions. If it's the living faith of the dead. Ritual is the dead faith of the living. And when you cross over from something being a tradition to being a ritual, it loses its meaning. 
And obviously something had changed. The faith was no longer a tradition, it was a ritual. And lost its meaning so that he shook it off. Said, we don't need this. And brought about a lack of restraint. If you don't have any faith, you lose your conscience. If you lose your conscience, because a conscience has to be informed, right? If you lose your conscience, you no longer have values. If you don't have values, then what guides any choices? You do whatever you want, a lack of restraint. Religion is so key to informing your conscience, to having a sense of right and wrong, guiding the choices of life. If we lose the spiritual faith of our fathers, what informs us? What guides us? What determines right or wrong for you? And of course, we live in a generation where people will tell you that. That might be right for you, but I have my own right. (laughs) Your right doesn't have to be my right. Your wrong doesn't have to be my wrong. Because we don't have a collective faith that informs us anymore. So it says that he went, in verse 22, in the time of his distress, he became even more unfaithful to the Lord. (laughs) You ever meet people who have gone so far in their decline that when they realize they're in trouble, they can't find their way back. They keep making choices that gets them in a worse situation. Well, that's what he hit, what happened to him. Until finally, it says in verse 24, that he closed the doors of the house of the Lord. Close the doors. Now think about what that means. Judah only had one worship place. They didn't have uh, synagogues at that point. So they only had one place as a nation to worship, and that was in Jerusalem at the temple. If you close the temple, you close the worship center. That would have been parallel to shutting every church in our own nation. And you say, well, that sounds a little familiar. (laughs) You close the worship places of your nation. How can you go from Isaiah the Good... To Ahaz the bad, from spiritual and national strength to spiritual and national decline, 
Where's the pivot? Well, we go to chapter 27. Let's look at the father. Between grandpa and the grandson is the father, Jotham. And it says of Jotham that he was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha. She was the daughter of Zadok, who was a high priest, by the way. So she would have been a preacher's kid. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father, as I had done. However, he didn't enter the temple of the Lord. The people continued acting corruptly because of it. Now, it's interesting, it says in verse 6, Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. So you got grandpa, who was a very faithful, godly king in almost every way. You've got the grandson, who's the most evil man you could wish for, who tells his own kids, go to hell. And you've got the father in the middle. You've only got 16 years, by the way, from the reign of grandpa to the reign of the grandson. 16 years. How fast can a nation decline? Well, that fast. That fast. His mother was the daughter of the high priest, so he had a channel for spiritual training through his mother. It says in verse 3, he was generous to the temple, making donations there. He was charitable. He was a builder of national infrastructure, just like his father was. And he was militarily strong as well. He built fortresses and towers in the wooded hills. And the Ammonites gave him during that year 100 talents of silver and 10,000 cores of wheat and 10,000 of barley. This guy was actually also quite an amazing king. This guy had learned from his father. He ordered his ways before the Lord. How did he do that? Well, he had a spiritual memory. He had a spiritual memory from his father and his mother. Because we know it wasn't his own, it says he didn't darken the doors of the temple. Isn't that interesting? So he wasn't somebody with first-generation faith. It was inherited faith. Why didn't he darken the doors of the temple? I wonder whether, we don't know exactly, but I'm guessing 
His father told him about his fight with the priests and being kicked out of the temple and having leprosy and never being able to go to the temple himself again because right outside the temple entry stood a sign, no man with leprosy shall enter here. He was forever barred. And since his father couldn't go, and because his father was angry, he wouldn't go. Could he go? Yes, but he wouldn't go, it says. And because he wouldn't go, what happened to his children? Right? They closed the doors. You know, we don't have to look far in our own country to find people who say, I will never go and darken the door of the church. Because I know what that priest did to me. And as a result, their children say, I will never darken the chore of a church because I know what my father said about church. What their experience was. And so we have people that can't live a spiritually guided life because they have no first-hand entry point to get it. Now, people say, well, yeah, but I can live a spiritually guided life without going to church. I can be a Christian, and I don't need the church. Yes, it's possible for you. Because you have a spiritual memory. But what's the memory of your children? They don't have a memory of where you got your faith. Children are not very good interpreters, but they're wonderful observers. And they see where you go to be informed of your life, for your life. They see where you get your strength from in your difficulty. And they watch. There are many people who struggle with church today. Somebody says the church has many critics. It really does have no rivals, though. And it's not a time to leave the church just because things go bad. If anything, that's the time to pitch in and to say, this is the time we need the church more than ever. I know my wife, when our children were young, she was, I'm always the one that's up here, and she had two, you know, Busy kids in the pew that she had to look after on her own and often have to take them out to the nursery. And she said, I don't quite know why I go to church anymore. I sit in church with restless, crying children, and what do I get out of it? 
You maybe don't get a lot out of it, but you model something. You model something. They know why we go to church. We were asked to leave a church at one point in our ministry, and uh, the very following Saturday, our kids who were now in their teens we were sitting at the supper table, and they said, so, I guess we don't have to go to church tomorrow. You don't have a job. <clears throat> they were hoping that Dad would say, yeah, we're all staying home. And something twigged in my brain that said, be careful. Be careful. What are you going to model to your children now? Are you going to be like Isaiah and say, I'm angry, and so we're not going? And I looked at my kids and I said, no, we're getting up in the morning. We'll go to our friend's church. We don't go to church to worship the people there. We go to worship God. And if ever we need to be able to worship and get some strength, it's now. So we trotted our kids out the next day to church. Because kids don't interpret well, but they sure observe well. It says, when Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been raised... Nazareth, where they knew him, where he knew them, where he knew their critical spirit and their sinfulness and all the other things, the town gossip, and knew all the reasons why he shouldn't go to the synagogue, certainly not that synagogue. It says, as was his habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. If Jesus went to the church of his day to get strength and to show where his strength comes from, do I need to? I think so. I think so. Now I'm preaching to the choir. But I'm concerned. We have to gather our people together again. And it's important, folks. It's important. And I don't want to see 50% of our young generation say, we can just stay home. It's not important. I can be in the trails of Banff and Jasper and worship God. But your kids, your kids, how are they interpreting that? Isaiah couldn't go to temple, so Jotham wouldn't go to the temple, so Ahaz closed the temple. Kind of follows. Amen.